Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our guest today is a powerful and energetic advocate for women in sport. She's manager, participation and partnerships at the New South Wales Office of Sport and lead on the Her Sport, Her Way strategy. She's walked the talk as well as a former world champion water polo player. She's competed at two FINA World Swimming Championships and captained the Australian University's netball team. On top of all her sporting, government and advocacy roles, she moonlights as an actor and has appeared in a number of plays including My Wonderful Day and bombshells. We're so pleased to catch up with her here. Today's trailblazer is Kerry Turner. Kerry, welcome to you. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Steph. I'm fine. I'm in ISO and I'm going loopy, but all is good. <laughs> for any of our listeners that haven't actually met Kerry Turner, she's possibly one of the most energetic people I've ever met. But her son has contracted the dreaded Omicron, so she's stuck at home. But she's joined us today to talk about everything in her life. And I want to start, Kerry, with the Her Sport, Her Way strategy. That is a huge undertaking to write something like that. Where did the decision to even do that come from? from well Steph as you know timing's everything in sport and it's definitely everything when you do policy making and in 2017 with the rising profile of women's sport and the fact that women were playing professional sport across the board in this country I knew in my heart that it was a perfect time to pitch uh, a concept to have a, a strategy within government just to build on that momentum and so I organized this big forum called Unleash the Value of Women's Sport and so many different stakeholders were attracted to that not just sport but brands and corporates and media and there was just such a good appetite and I knew from all my experiences as an athlete that you need a really great platform to drive change and you need a collaborative effort so it was really fantastic at the time the CEO and the Minister of the Day were right behind it and they um, gave me the space to get an evidence-based strategy together and um, yeah really proud of it being launched and what it's achieved so far but most importantly that it's part of the whole movement that's wanting to advance women in sport right now so you know government has a role to play but definitely everyone in and around that ecosystem are firing so well to advance women and 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 make more opportunities for girls particularly at the moment with the world in its disruptive space I think that's even an opportunity to advance this even further mm. so yeah very proud of being able to get get it at the right time and to get that support. Can you tell me in that interim time how long was the strategy 
supposed to be? Was it written as a, a four-year strategy? Yes, it's a four-year strategy. We're up to year three, so we've got one more year to go. And yeah, and it's it's really been designed around a model called the socio-ecological model, Steph. So it's about looking at behaviour change. And that's what I really like about working in this space. We've looked at the key influences and that impact. So if you're thinking of a young girl wanting to play sport, the biggest influences in her life are family, her mum and dad and her friends. And then there's the community. So it's all the things that sporting organisations provide and schools. And then at the top level, it's society. And that's that's our new age role models. That's women. That's our female athletes. That's their storytelling. That's their visibility. That's World Cups. That's everything. So at the moment, with that rising profile, it has changed conversations right down to the kitchen table. So um, with the strategy, we've pitched really evidence-based approaches across all those um, areas. And my heart just gets so excited about things like the Daughters and Dads program. It gets excited about what sports are doing that are innovative. And it gets really excited about how wonderful our athletes are, their role modelling and how sport is being presented in a different way. And I think that's that's really exciting. It's um, a great opportunity right now to forge new investment. And I think it takes really clever thinking to land what's happening now into big business for women's sport. And that's what I'm really passionate about. How important is buy-in that it comes from men and from women? Oh, look, it's it's really important. I think any equality piece, yes, you must call it out, but if you keep shouting at a system and not showing a way forward and bringing people with you like hearts and minds, I think you fall short. And the Daughters and Dads program is, is so unique in the marketplace. And all dads out there that are listening to this know that you have a really strong influence on your daughter's social and emotional well-being. It's evidence-based. And you have a huge impact in terms of building their, their confidence around sporting skills. And this program has been in the marketplace for over 10 years now. It's the brainchild of Professor Phil Morgan from the University of Newcastle. And every dad that goes through this with their daughter just values that opportunity to be with other fathers and speak about how they can raise confident girls. And the girls themselves just, you know, they just burst with enthusiasm and, and this new empowerment. And they do things with their dads like rough and tumble play and sporting skills in the backyard. And I'm just so proud that not only are we scaling that up in New South Wales as, a, as its you know, core program, but sports like cricket and basketball and now football will be tailoring that for their own delivery. And, and it was at the Ashes this, this year, it was in the Ashes program, you know, that daughters and dads and hey, dads <laughs> out there, you play cricket with your daughter, it's going to encourage them. And I love hearing, you know, um, some of our elite cricketers talk about how they still warm up with their dads in the pitch. And, I, you know, my dad played such a big role in my love of water polo. You know, he was always in the backyard pool with us, you know, passing the ball. And, and he was an ex-footy player. And I just loved going to the footy with him. I didn't really get into the footy. I just wanted to be with dad. And so just that power of fathers or male role models, they're really powerful in young girls and shaping that. And, you know, understanding the gender lens that some of those stereotypes and barriers for girls and being that champion of change. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud that we've been able to integrate such an evidence-based program into the strategy. Um, that makes me really happy. So who are the key target demographics then? You spoke about the influencers and what a broad range of people they are, but is the target the kids or is it something that starts with the parents? Well, I think in, in that regard, it's definitely you want to, you want to install a love of sport in a young girl. You want to install that. Mm. 
and you want to ensure that the environments in and around that young girl are really inclusive for her. And let's face it, Steph, sport was never really built for women and girls and we realise, you know, we're getting to a world now <laughs> where hopefully we feel worthy, you know, we feel worthy of it. I mean, my whole experience is growing up as a young girl, sport, you know, I was so passionate to, to play at the Olympics, you know, I just watched it every four years on the telly and I, I resonated with those women because I couldn't see them anywhere else. And, you know, water polo kind of broke my heart a little bit because the Olympics was like a date that I could never have because because of being a woman, I wasn't allowed to compete there. And, you know, and those, those times have changed now. So I really get that young girls need to see that they can have that opportunity. They need those role models. They need to see that they're coaches. They need to see that they can be in positions, you know, on boards. They need to see themselves as referees. And this is the time where that's all happening. You know, Amy Perrett, you know, how great was it when we yeah. saw her run yeah. out and referee a super rugby match? And, you know, Claire Polisak being the first umpire of a, you know, of a major test match and Belinda yeah. Sharp refereeing, you know, an NRL match. These, these times now are really showing the next generation of girls that you have a space in sport and that you should feel worthy in that space. And so, like I said, it's not just one place that it, that we've been pitching her sport her way and we're just one player as government for sure we're trying to really help everyone in and around it understand the insights but also understand how to design your offering so it's inclusive and it's designed with women and girls in mind and perhaps even designed by women and girls and that you're creating this environment where they can thrive and there's so many commercial diamonds now that we can see that's a point of difference and I think we've got to be really clever about not getting in the way of that and not trying to retrofit like going forward these diamonds are interesting to corporates and brands that really know the power of this storytelling and really know the power of women as influencers and you know purchasing power of women and keep understanding how we're consuming it keep understanding what we want from it and um, keep making these events rich for women and um, just on that, I was watching the final on the weekend, um, the um, NRLW final and the Roosters winning. I don't know if you caught that either, Steph, but the yeah, yeah. speeches at the end, just, I was in tears. It was just so beautiful. You know, the, 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 they were just heartwarming and I just would not, I know that to be women's sport. I've been there as an athlete and I know how um, wonderful um, and I guess wholesome it is. Um, we all love the Matildas. Um, there's a lot of research now that's compelling around, you know, how women's sports partnerships and sponsorships are eliciting, you know, great outcomes, but that Australians actually are embracing female athletes and female teams. There's this emotional connection that's greater than we've ever seen, and that's prime for investment. So we don't have to keep doing stuff that's been set up that hasn't been designed for us. I think it's really exciting now of what can be and what should be. Um, but that takes clever thinking at a time when um, the world is changing rapidly. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Our Trailblazer today is New South Wales Officer Sports Participation and Partnerships Manager Kerry Turner. Kerry, you mentioned two words, C and B, and I remember quite a few years ago now you're one of the first people to say if she can see it she can be it that's just really come to fruition with everything that you've you've spoken about in our first segment but can you take us back to your childhood 
you had sporty parents. Is that where the love of sport started? I mean, you look like the quintessential Aussie sports girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steph, I was the youngest of six and I think um, I needed a name tag. My mum and dad were so busy playing sport and volunteering <laughs> and, um, you know, there's four girls, two two boys and three of um, my, my sisters, or two of my sisters and I, we all did play, you know, for Australia in water polo. It was a very busy household never felt the pressure. Mum and dad were, they were great because we all just, we all found our journey our own way. It wasn't like they were hovering at all because they were into Mm. it themselves. I mean, my mum at 40 started playing, you know, a thousand different sports. It was quite a busy, a busy (laughs) household. And they're always being president of this, that, and the other thing. So through my eyes, it was normal to give back. And I really love that that's part of my DNA is that, you know, you see something that's needed and you just drop everything and do it. And I think, we all know that's the lifeblood of sport is volunteering and I've got that from my mum and dad and I'm really proud of the work that they, they've done, particularly in water polo and, and setting that, you know, within me. But, yeah, it was a very active household. We had an active street. I was just into everything, everything that moved at a time when you really didn't have a lot of role models to say, you know, that's what you should do. So in a way, though, I was really grateful I wasn't born in the era of social media because you could be as daggy as all get out you could fall over. I didn't care what I looked like. I mean, I went to high school with ponytail, you know, pigtails in high school because I wanted to run around the, you know, the, the playground. Imagine doing that now. I mean, we just look so stupid. You mentioned earlier the water polo and watching the Olympics and wishing you could be a part of that. Now, speaking of taking on tough assignments, you and your family played a huge role in getting women's water polo recognised as an Olympic sport. Can you share that journey? Yeah, it, it, like I said, it water polo did break my heart a little bit. And I loved playing it, don't get me wrong. And, you know, 10 years in the Australian team and lots of great experiences and just playing in a, in a team. I mean, how wonderful is that? And being at your best and, you know, water polo is tough for anyone that's played it. It's, you know, it's a true team sport and, you know, five hours of training a day, institutes, it was everything. It was all of that stuff that everyone goes through now, but great experiences that I would, I'm so grateful I had. But yeah, I, I, you know, my first year in the Australian team, I was 17, went to LA Olympics as a demonstration sport and we won that World Cup. So we came back a week early, but it was like, yeah, as a 17 year old, this is something I'll be, I'll be able to play in Olympics. And yeah, um, lots of World Cups and World Championships um, over that, 10-year period and each time an Olympic had come and go and it just didn't happen while Ost was playing but my mum was always you know um, she headed up the Gender Equity Commission for Australian Water Polo she was on these international groups always um, advocating and every trip we're on no matter where we were we had you know placards and signs you know women's water polo for the Olympics rah 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 (laughs) but it was like to deaf ears and for those that are from my era and I'm a bit old um, you know it was pretty old school and, you know, particularly FINA at that stage, women didn't really play water polo and, you know, they didn't want to know. However, we were playing on every continent and it was ferociously tough and um, we really did deserve that opportunity. Um, my dad was the president of Australian Water Polo too and uh, I think for mum, when dad stepped down as president, she felt it was okay to go full rebel and I think that was um, quite hilarious to see my mum in that mode. <laughs> Because I had retired too and she was still going. And that's another thing that I I really admire about my parents Mm. was that they kept volunteering even though their kids had moved on from that space. And, um, yeah, we just demonstrated at airports, caused caused a lot of 
fracas and um, got a lot of media attention, <laughs> a lot of noise. Um, but it was only two years out from the Olympics that we were included and, uh, and then the rest was history. That team, amazing because, you know, um, you can get to that stage and fall short and it was an, mm. a really exciting final for those that remember it and it came down to the last 0.03 seconds on the clock and yeah. like I'm getting emotional telling it to you again because it did change everything for women's water polo and we're all really proud. Uh, I love I love the word fracker. I can quite imagine you in an airport making a, a, a fracker. <laughs> That's sensational. It was embarrassing because uh, you were making uh, that fracker not- and cozies in a hat. It was really unglamorous. <laughs> I do love it and I so wish there'd been social media around there. <laughs> but tell us your pride in those who have now had that opportunity, even though you never got to play at the Olympics. Uh, that must yeah. make you feel very satisfied with, with what you do. Would that be a fair assumption? Oh, totally. I mean, as I said, timing is everything and that timing was perfect then. And I think I carry with me in my heart opportunity and stage opportunity stage just give us that opportunity to be on the same stage we will design it we'll make it we'll we'll roar we will you know like in my work experience I've had so many opportunities to do workshops with sports and a lot of those high impact sports have asked me to help them you know go into schools and still say rugby to schools or you know and I always start with don't be afraid women involve women in the design and let them own the space because it will be something special. And I think that's echoed in everything. I mean, there was a moment in Girls Can't Surf, that surfing movie, I think that really gelled in what I'm saying when um, Quicksilver um, found that board shorts sales went through the roof, but they couldn't work out who was buying them. And female surfers <laughs> were starting to get more visibility. And it was women. So they created Roxy and then Roxy overtook, yeah. you know, Quicksilver. So it's almost like, yeah. don't be scared of something different. It'll be an opportunity that will just... You know, open up new new um, opportunities, not only for the sport, but for the investment, for the consumption, and most importantly, for equality. You know, that's what it is. Mm. So, yeah, these these moments are great. I think that we're having now, for sure. Your sporting career, you were ridiculously talented. It wasn't just the the water polo success, uh, two FINA World Swimming Championships, and you captained the Australian University's netball team. How did you pick and divide your time? Well, it was funny with that netball moment because it was the year I wasn't picked in the Australian team. I really was cranky <laughs> and I'd been playing netball and water polo at the same time. And um, yeah, it was like, boo-hoo you. And I just went, I'm playing water, I'm playing netball this year. And I had a really good netball year. And um, yeah, we toured New Zealand. It was freezing. And um, yeah, the next year I got back in the Australian team. So it was that little blip moment. And I love netball. I just loved it as much as, you know, water polo. Yeah, but it was... As I said, I just wanted to, I really wanted to go to the Olympics, Steph, but, you know, hey, that's, I was going to do high jumping and I'm like virtually five foot nothing. So <laughs> I had all these ideas in my head, but yeah, uh, you know, sport's been a wonderful, um, has had a wonderful place in my life, that's for sure. And I've learned so much from it. And I think, um, I think, you know, often if I get asked to speak to young people, I, I just talk about things like, um it helps you to understand winning and losing and you lose a lot more in in sport than you, you win. And it's that ability to have your game hat off straight after you've had your game hat on. So being able to get over things quickly and being resilient is, I think, a really good thing that I've gained through it. Um, uh, yeah, obviously confidence and, and, and teamwork and all those sorts of things. But 
um, as you do get older, you know, your life is full of events. And I've had, you know, an incredible trauma hit me, you know, nine years ago and my husband died, you know, suddenly from a heart attack. And then I was, you know, a widow with two sons, 14 and 16, really devastating. Um, you know, he was an incredible athlete himself. So it was, you know, larger than life character. And I, I do know that all the experiences I had in sport really, I think have helped me um, rebuild. And I think there's something really wonderful watching women rebuild from trauma, you know, I mean, I was watching myself do it, <laughs> but it's like you do reinvent. And I know that um, that positivity I gained and that resilience, I think from sport helped me to do that. How do you pick yourself up after that? That's not something you could plan for. That was a, a shock and it tore your life apart at the time. What is the process to do that or is it one day at a time? Well, I was gasping for air. It was quite um, a, an, a, an incredible gut-wrenching, never before, you know, experience from the moment it happened. And um, funnily enough, I just kept taking myself to the pool every day. I kept swimming through the moment, the, the, the hour that he'd passed away because, you know, incredible grief and trauma takes your breath away. It, you can't breathe. And um, it, it was weird. Uh, the things I was doing in those first few months were just on, you know, um, intuition really. And I just wanted to swim through that hour because swimming is the only thing on the planet where you have to breathe, you know? So for me, swimming calmed me. And I didn't know I was doing it, but I got really good at swimming again. And it was like Forrest Gump. I just had to stop doing that. I just, it was like, I was using swimming <laughs> to heal in those early days. And then I, um, I found myself enrolling in um, drama classes. And I know I always wanted to do theatre and I walked past the little theatre company and I just enrolled on that day. And I'm so glad I did it because I, I didn't know at the time, but I was finding my my. Um, happiness again you know and not only did I find it but I really flourished in it it's uh you know it was a really good thing to focus on to build another network and maybe to be in a place that I didn't wear the beacon of this terrible things happened to me mind you my family and friends and sport was holding me dearly and that's one thing that's beautiful about sport it um you know it's a place you go to time of need and people do hold you wonderfully but I think in trauma, you have, to, you have to find it in yourself. You have to find something that can bring you out of, of it. And it just takes time. And it's it still, I mean, people said earlier on, it's like a scratchy cardigan, grief, and it, you'll always wear it. It just doesn't itch you as much in, as time moves forward. And I think there's a lot of beauty that can come out of trauma as well. And particularly where I find myself now and the things that I've done since then, not only with my boys, but you know, um, I did a lot of coaching. I've done a lot of, I've just thrown myself at other activities just to keep finding my legs. And, um, but I have to say that that acting was really fabulous. And I really enjoyed some of the things I've learned through acting that were very similar to sport, but in a different way. Like there are a couple of plays there that I've been in that I've just had such wonderful experiences. But unlike sport, once you hit the stage and you're in a play, it's not competitive you have each other's back because you can't drop a line and you can, you know, and I, I love the um, adrenaline before you go on stage and I love the camaraderie and I love the challenge, but more so I just love embodying a personality that's not you and learning about someone else. And some of the parts that I've played have been really similar, I guess, to the lead up of Her Sport, Her Way. I, um, 
yeah, one character in particular was this wonderful lady called Mrs. Betterton, and it was in a play called Playhouse Creatures. And Mrs. Betterton was the first female of Elizabethan theatre, and she used to audition for plays as a man because women weren't allowed to perform on stage and she had these rich parts and she was a great actress but everyone thought she was a man and then the king of the time decided that no women should perform but it was only to look at them you know you know as sex objects and stuff and it broke Mrs Betterton's heart because now the truth was out and she had to audition in these female parts that were really crappy for her and she ends up losing her mind and playing that role I really felt for Mrs. Betterton because, you know, she finally had this opportunity, but it was watered down from a male's perspective of what it should be. It fired me up even more. She should have had the stage on her own terms. So, you know, I love that about experiences of women and playing, you know, these wonderful roles. But I also love that um, there's a lot to take away from theatre and particularly improv and I would really like to take those concepts, you know, hopefully to use in boardrooms. I mean, a lot of women feel outnumbered in a boardroom. Um, they feel like their voice can't be heard. And I think that's really still something that's, you know, at all levels of corporate sector and in parliament and everything. It, it is really tricky for women leaders. Um, but in terms of improv theatre, uh, what I love about that is that Anything that is done in improv, it's, it's an and and yes kind of approach that ideas flourish. And I think we can learn a lot from the arts in those sort of power broking moments um, in terms of how we approach that from a communication perspective. And I think if more boards were uh, more inclusive of innovation and of people's voices, no matter who you are, whatever gender, they'd be better places and you'd want to actually be on a board. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Chatting to the extraordinary Kerry Turner and being on boards is something that has become part of your life. I mean, when we talk about you, perhaps circumstances leading you to acting, I think you've got a personality that was born to be centre stage. So it's, it's not any surprise that you've become such an important part in advisory groups, uh, thought leading processes and boards. How do we get that balance in the boardroom? Because it's one thing to say, yep, come and sit on boards. And I've been on a couple where you are in the room and you have the seat at the table and then you're not sure what you should say. Whereas for, and I'm not saying all men, I'm not speaking for, for anyone else, but just to say that the perception is that guys go into those positions and always know what to say and always have their voice heard. How do we move the needle on that? Yeah, I think traditionally we've always focused on let's get the women more confident, let's train the women up, let's get them board ready. But it's actually we need to focus on let's make that environment as inclusive as possible. And I want to see innovation here because I've yet to see and I'm always you know, scanning the horizon. I'm really into evidence base. I really want to know the best, the best ways to approach things. But, um, you know, when our most senior women actually say that they too had a great idea and then there was a pause and then five minutes later, someone else that <laughs> might have been a bloke said it and everyone listened to it, I just go, are we talking cat and it's heard as dog or... You know, what is it about those moments um, that need to be more inclusive? How can we um, be equal on those stages where our voices are heard 
And that's why I was just talking about innovative, you know, innovation, I'm sorry, yeah, innovation in terms of, you know, improv theatre, because a little piece of a play drops short when it's actually got button at, you know, when it gets closed down. So I just think it comes a lot to communication. It comes a lot down to inclusive environments, but also acceptance. I think we're really at the point now where um, maybe it's through training, maybe it's through better awareness. We always say that 40% um, is a good um, level of representation, 40-40 and that 20 can be a build-up of you know, expertise that's required. But at the moment, we're still way off that. So you have a bad experience on a board, you're not wanna come, you don't want to come back. It's not something you want to spend your time on. And I know you've probably experienced it too, Steph, but I've been on some boards that go forever. Um, I've been on board meetings that are happening at the pub where I was in a really you know, <laughs> well, uncomfortable Well, if they're going to go forever. <laughs> yeah, and I just go, this is not what I want. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not, I don't feel like I want to spend my time here and I've got great things. So I think we're at a really good time in sport to think differently about that environment. What does an inclusive board feel like, not just for women, but for everybody, you know, women and all diversity within women, but also men and women working together. I mean, that's what we want to get to. Um, and yeah. we're, look, we're doing some really good work with Sport New South Wales on, um, on looking at how we can build inclusive sporting environments, but also around the boardroom. So hopefully we can learn a lot more from that and um, just find out where the gaps are that we've got to invest in. But I'd really love to see some real innovation in this space. Um, you know, and also women as coaches and as referees, um, the ones that really want to do it, we've really got to support them and showcase them and really listen to what is it that's turning them off. You know, that's just as important as inspiring them to be those, those positions. And of all the, board mm. posi all the positions I've held in sport, I've loved coaching the most. Coaching's wonderful. It is, it's that position where you can see, uh, you know, you have this great impact. You do get thanked. <laughs> you get thanked at the end of it. And I've only ever coached boys' teams and I feel really, um, I've always uh, uh, talked about values. I've always talked about or, or, or tried to install wonderful team values within, within those teams that I've coached and it comes back tenfold. Um, you know, what is a really good sporting environment? What's a positive one? How do we respect each other? What does that look like, sound like, feel like? And get the boys to own that. That's how I went about it. And I really think, um, we start at grassroots with that kind of conversation and we involve parents in that so that we just don't lose some of the great things that sport can offer because it can also be really ugly. And we mm. want to really try and safeguard the things you can get out of sport that are really fantastic, but you've got to keep working on that environment and that culture. And really her sport, her way is about positive sporting culture. It's at the heart of it. You and I are fortunate to be working on a, a government initiative. Uh, it was actually the brainchild of the Honourable Natalie Ward when she was Sports Minister, the, the Game Changers Advisory Council. I found the most interesting conversation we had in our first meeting was uh, we, we talked all around the inclusivity for women and all that sort of thing. And then the point was raised that what does inclusion and diversity look like? Because in all the talk about making better environments for women, we sometimes forget cultural backgrounds, different mm. religions, different ways of life, different levels of ability. 
and and that includes and and predominantly uh, our own First Nations people here in Australia. It's what does diversity look like to you, and what does real inclusion look like? I think real inclusion and diversity is informed in every environment that we walk into, and I think the litmus test is that. If you walk into this environment, no matter who you are, whatever your background, you feel worthy. And I think that's a really good measure. And I, um, so by that, you know, do you feel like this space um, is welcoming to you? And, you know, for First Nations people, you know, do you see yourself replicated in the board? It's, sorry, on the board, but you see yourself on the walls of the clubhouse. Um, do you feel yourself welcomed? Is there artwork that you, you know, is there opportunity for you there? Um, if you're really talented, did someone tap you on the shoulder and go, come over here? If you wanted to coach, did that happen for you as well? If you're on a boardroom, is your voice listened to? So I think um, understanding the needs, um, understanding the barriers to diverse and in, um, groups is really important to any people in decision-making positions in sport. Um, and by understanding them and having representation on any program elements, like if you're designing a program for, you know, adolescent girls, for example, make sure the representation on that program to design it has diversity, that you've got, you know, an Indigenous school, you've got girls there that um, from different backgrounds and that you've got their voice. It's about having a voice to design what it should be. Um, and I think if that's happening in the um, offerings and if that's happening when you walk into a venue and it's, it's bricks and mortar too, Stefan, and the environment, it's the way the venue has been set up. It's a toilet that is clean and it's got, you know, space for you. If you're in a wheelchair, you know, it, it keeps going further and further. And I think, the wonderful thing is we're starting to have these conversations now, but in order to have them, you need to include all the voices in the design and implementation of what you're trying to do. So I always say, what does it look like when um, we've reached equality in sport? You ask the participants. And I think the most important thing is they'll say, do I feel worthy? And it's a very good check-in. Um, and if they do feel worthy, it's because that environment has been inclusive for them. 100%. Uh, I think when we know when we've got an equal environment is when we're not talking about equality uh, anymore. And it'll be uh, intriguing to see how that develops now that that is part of the conversation. And uh, even if people aren't practicing what they preach, then it, it is a conversation that's being had at all levels. How did you get into that that space and I've had a couple of interesting conversations uh, over the past months particularly around International Women's Day where without fail the women that have gone on and done uh, roles like you have yourself and and had their voices heard is because they've never said no to an opportunity was that your experience yeah I've never said no to a project I think I've, I've always chased <laughs> I'm a very um like I uh I probably haven't chased title but I've I've chased um, an opportunity to work on a, uh, on something that means a lot to me and I've always found myself drawn to um, to programs that are around inclusion and diversity and 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 big issues like childhood obesity and um, and I've I think from jumping in and being um, involved in that I've learned a whole lot of skills so I really value all the years I've spent in government because I've had such a um, a complete exposure to really high level policy um, writing. So um, I know the power of working with universities and having an evidence base and to really 
think innovatively about using that evidence in terms of the relevancy of the time. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, getting my stripes in that world because I think if you can bring that academia to the design of something new and you've got that program um, passion, you're going to get great outcomes. But I think too, um, as I said before, volunteering in, in everything is um, you just get that grassroots, they get that reality check. So I feel like yeah, the passion in me is always about sport being better than it can than it than it is presented. I um because I think it can be really wonderful and it's been wonderful, but I also know where we fall short. And I really um really like pitching the value proposition of sport so that it can, you know, it can be um great for people to participate in. And just like, you know, as a mum, <laughs> I think when you become a, a parent and you go back to sport through a parent's eyes, you really want the best for your kids. And there's been moments when I've been bitterly disappointed by the impact of the bad impact. And I've always thought, I've always thought, well, I, maybe I can do something here. And as I said before, I'm probably not a shouter. I'm more of a problem solver or a solutions focused person. And I bring people along, you know, with their hearts and minds. So things like, you know, sport rage prevention, I was really um, involved in that for many years and um, and a project in, in particular that I designed for Water Polo Australia called Think, Act, Play. And it was all around coaches' behaviours and for coaches to really think of the voice they use and the impact they have. And um, they are the brand of the sport, but they also can cause, you know, quite, they can cause harm if they are actually not approaching the way they're coaching young people. So um, I think for me, it's just been this passion I mean, my whole my whole career has always been led by passion, and um, yeah. So I think that's my best answer for that. Not not so much chasing positions, but opportunities to work on really great projects, or designing them and coming up with them. Always have an idea in your chop shelf. I think is my big message because um, you never know when you can bring it out and it can be supported. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Trailblazer today is the superstar Kerry Turner. Tell us, what do you do outside of the myriad roles that we've spoken about? Have you got another a play on the horizon? Can we come down to the theatre and watch you strut your stuff? Well, Steph, I'm really excited to say yes, because the last yeah. five years now, I've been her sport her way all the way. And I, even though I do do a lot of, I guess, um, presenting in that, presenting is very different to acting, and I really can't wait to get my... Um, my acting legs back on the stage and tread those boards. I, I was cast in the play last year, but because of COVID, I had to um, reschedule it. It's called The Book of Everything. And it's, uh, it's really a wonderful play, I think. I haven't had my first rehearsal yet, but I'm playing a crazy auntie. And it's going to be an ensemble piece, which means we'll be on stage the whole time. So I have to get fit. So it's funny because acting, yeah, you have to be fit for it. You have to um, run around the stage and do, you know, a lot of antics. So, um, but I'm looking forward to it. It's a great cast. There's a lot of young people in it. So that'll make me really happy again. Um, yes, I'm looking forward to that next. Brilliant. And and what about outside of that? Your boys are now men. How much yeah. uh, of your life is, is, is taken up still with, with parenting? I know you've got one there with uh, COVID at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, I'm at that really great time. They're sort of they're on their feet and it's I'm so proud of that um you know coming through what we came through and which means I have a lot of time so of course I want to travel like everybody I've missed that so much 
I like, uh, I really have to focus on my own health. So I do heaps of Pilates because I'm held together by gaffer tape. Water polo is a brutal sport and everything in my body, you know, if I don't do Pilates will fall apart. I don't remember the scene at it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know the scene at the Blues Brothers where they finally get to the last place and the car just goes, poof, 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 poof. I think if I didn't do Pilates, I would be that car. Yeah, so just, you know, staying fit and stuff. My family mean everything to me. I, I'm very blessed. We're a very close family. So, and everybody's had kids and they're having kids. So I do like spending a lot of time with them. Um, and that's, yeah, that's me. There's so much to look forward to in the coming, as you say, as we, we get back to some sort of normality and, and get travelling again. What are you most looking forward to on the sporting horizon? We've got so many big green and gold events, if you like, coming our way in the next 10 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the future because we're just in this amazingly transformative time. And, um, yep, the FIBA Basketball World Cup, I've worked alongside Basketball New South Wales on the Legacy Program, and they're doing some great things there. Um, of course, the FIFA World Cup, that's going to be so huge. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're really big. And I think we should embrace these because, you know, the Olympics is going to Brisbane. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've got to really, uh, really enjoy these World Cups while they're in, um, you know, our state. Uh, but I'm also really excited about, um, you know, the opportunities for future investment for women's sport, just hosting that Trendspotter Forum recently and bringing together brands and corporates and media and, um, and sport just to dive into those, as I kept saying, those diamonds that are unique to um, women's sport. And I just think the innovation that's about to happen, that excites me more than anything. And, you know, we talk about the Olympics in 2032 where will we be watching it from, Stephanie? Will it be from another planet? Who knows? I mean, the world is changing so quickly. <laughs> and I just, I just reflect on Tokyo. It was such a pared-back Olympics. It was such a wholesome Olympics in that, you know, the stands weren't full of people. The athletes were so grateful to be there. They presented their own medals to themselves. There was something really wholesome about how the focus was on their athletic ability, but they were just really grateful to be there and you could see it. You know, the, there was some, you know, our swimmers were sharing the, the platform with someone that came, you know, that got the bronze because they wanted to say thank you to them. It was, there were so many wonderful um, sports stories out of that Olympics that I think because of COVID, they, um, they came to the, the forefront. And I, I think it's reminding us of, of that wonderful value of sport. And I think the pandemic really, you know, sport did hold us together a lot. Um, the fact we could watch it. I think the biggest challenge for us now is getting getting kids back to sport, getting families back there because behaviour has been disrupted. Um, I'm really worried about adolescent girls. I'm worried for their mental health. I'm worried about um, where they are at the moment. We know that one in four girls are saying they may not come back to sport. So I really want to spend a lot of my time gathering as much data, enthusing the sporting organisations to think really differently about the offerings. And um, we've got some great programs that sports are doing, like Her Wave and Girls Making Waves. And they're, they're, they're thinking very differently about what they're designing. But um, I think that's a big challenge um, at the moment is sport as we knew it at grassroots is really struggling. We've got, you know, we know you know, the, the flood affected areas, even, you know, venues are soggy now and they're not even playing this weekend. And, mm. the, you know, the, the consistent uncertainty um, whilst the elite end and the professional end is still rolling, which is great. Um, I think we've got a lot of work collectively to do to really resource, but also support those volunteers 
delivering sport at the grassroots level and hopefully getting the kids to not just watch it but to want to play it. And how about Kerry Turner and the 2032 Olympics? You know what? <laughs> if I was if I was if I was able to I would I would go rugby. I think I would have loved rugby sevens. Because I just mm. ball in hand, bit of grunt, bit of tackling, you know. Um yeah, that would have been fun. Anyway, I don't know. The future's um, very exciting. I think what's happened to me in my life, I just uh, I just really am in the moment. I've learned that you can't control tomorrow, but gosh, you can um, really uh, grab what's in front of you. I play what's in front of me more than I ever have. So yeah, I'm open to anything, Steph, <laughs> but I don't think I'll be playing. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what happens, but in the the busyness of your your schedule and even lockdown in ISO, you're flat out and I'm so grateful you've taken the time to chat to us on Trailblazer today. Thank you so much.